Hey, um, we are going through the book of Acts. And if you have your Bible, it'd be fantastic if you can open it up to Acts chapter 20. Cool stuff is going on. Now, as we're going through this book, we're kind of tracking with what God did with the early church. And I got to tell you, when you look at the uh, early church, the early church had it down really better than any other time in the church history. The early church had it down. There was love, there was the miraculous, there was prayer, there was all kinds of stuff. And if you're going to look at any era in the history of the church as to what should church be like, you got to go back to the source. And that's what's so cool about this book of Acts here. And one thing that we can tell, we can learn a lot about people in this book of Acts. We can tell a lot based on their itinerary. Um, If you were to take a summer vacation and say take the entire summer off, you would be able to tell a lot about somebody by their itinerary. Where did they go? Who did they spend time with? What did they do? What were their priorities? The itinerary would reveal a lot. Well, in this passage today, we're going to get to see Paul's itinerary. And as we travel through, we're going to see, okay, he went here and did this with these people, and then he went here and did this with these people. But when we look in between the lines of his itinerary, we're going to say, wow, some amazing stuff happened. And my prayer is that we would look at this itinerary, find out what the early church did, and that you and I would begin to apply some of this stuff in our lives as well. It's really cool. Uh, We're looking at lessons from the early church. Because I'll tell you, this is the place you got to look. If you want to know what church should be like, how it should be, you know, you don't want to start with any point in history. You want to go back to the early church and go, wow, these guys were doing it right. So let's um, start Acts chapter 20. We're going to start in verse 1. If you don't have your Bible, this is in the bulletin. And we're going to learn some lessons from the early church this morning. And uh, to set this up, there was just a big riot that happened. And the local people who were building idols out of gold and silver and everything, their business started to go downhill. Because the people of God started to, to rise up and they weren't buying this stuff anymore. And so these people were flipping out and saying, the Christians are messing up our business. And so they had a big riot and the riot just Ended, And this is where this passage begins this morning, if you can follow along. And uh, we're going to start in verse 1. It says, When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for some of the disciples, and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He traveled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people, and finally arrived in Greece, where he stayed three months. Because the Jews made a plot against him, Just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. He was accompanied by Sopatar, son of Pyrrhus, from Berea, Aristarchus and Secondus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derbe, Timothy also, Tychius and Trophimus from the province of Asia. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. But we sailed from Philippi after the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and five days later, joined the others at Troas, where we stayed seven days. Now, here's the thing about the Word of God. You read the Bible, and you go, okay, a passage like that, it just sounds like kind of a history lesson on where they traveled. What's really the point? Well, the amazing thing about Scripture is every time I read stuff or study on stuff, you find more and more stuff in there, stuff you never saw before. We're going to look at this travel itinerary, and there's some stuff going on in here. And the setup is this. Paul and the believers are about to leave this uh, 
big riot that happened in Ephesus, specifically Paul. And he knows that the believers went through a serious, serious trial. And when you think about trials, guys, we all go through trials. Maybe some of you this morning are going through a trial right now. Maybe some of you came in this morning with a trial. Uh, Maybe you just got through one. But I assure you, at some point in the future, you will be going through one because life is a test, it's a trial, and it's a temporary assignment. So trials will come. They will always come. The church just went through a profound trial right here. But here's the, the difference with Paul. Paul knows the power of a trial. Trials can be so powerful if you recognize them the right way. Some folks don't. They don't know what to do with a trial, and they don't learn a lesson in a trial. The church in Ephesus just went through a crazy trial. It was a riot. It looked like Christianity was going to be outlawed almost. That's how big of a deal it was. And so this church goes through a trial. Paul knows that not only is there a powerful opportunity in our trials, he also knows that these trials can shape us. These trials can shape us and mold us in a way that no teaching ever can. You can hear teaching, you can read the word, and you go, yeah, I kind of get the point, but it doesn't really change me. And other times, you can go through a trial, you come out different on the other side. Um, When they would refine gold, refiner's fire, the Bible talks about, they would heat it up under extreme heat, you would remove the dross, and it would get clearer and clearer and clearer until the refiner can see his reflection in the product. It's like you and me. It's like you and me going through the refiner's fire, you and me going through trials, and everybody interprets these differently. But here's here's the thing. This is one thing that Paul knows very clearly about trials. Paul knows that there's power in them. Paul knows that trials have the capacity to shape us. And Paul also knows this. Some people respond differently to trials. Some people, you can have two people going through the same trial. Some people, when they go through the trial, they'll end up hardening their heart, getting mad at God, and eventually God ends up having less of them. Somebody else can go through the same trial. They don't harden their heart. They soften their heart. They actually uh, grow in faith through the process, and God has more of them on the other side of the trial. What's amazing about this, it's the same type of people going through the same type of trial, and it's all about how that trial gets interpreted. So if you're in a trial now, maybe you've been through a trial, you're trying to figure it out, or maybe you're going to be going through a trial, the way you interpret your trial, folks, is so, so important. Uh, I, I say that because I'm saddened sometimes by folks when they go through a trial and they think, where is God in all this? Why is God punishing me? Is he mad at me? He doesn't answer my prayers. And they're kind of shaking their fists at the Almighty One. They harden their heart, and they begin to take a step backwards and retreat. Others interpret it completely different. God, I don't get this. I don't understand it. But you're God, and I'm not. You're on the throne. I know the plans you have for me, even though I can't figure it out. And on the other side of the trial, they come out refined, closer to the Lord, with their faith stretched. Does that make sense? Same trials. Paul knows this. If you're a note-taker this morning, he knows it's all about how you and I interpret our trials. If you're taking notes, write that one down. That's the first point. If we're going to learn lessons from the early church, interpret your trials wisely. Interpret your trials wisely. 
Don't just go through a trial and go, I can't figure this out, I'm mad. Don't go through a trial and go, well, I don't feel good. I don't feel like I like this. I feel like God left me. I feel like I'm mad at God. This is all your feelings. That's not the way to interpret your trials. Interpret your trials based on the Word of God. What are His promises for you? How about this one? I'll never leave or forsake you. If God is for you, who can be against you? Yeah, this thing is falling apart, but it's okay. It's part of the trial. Don't hang everything on this issue over here. I'm, I'm, I'm bigger than this. I'm going to see you through this storm. And this is so important, but interpret your trials wisely, and I would base that on the Word of God and not your feelings. So many times people go through a trial and say, well, I feel, I feel, I feel. Dangerous place to be. You know why? Because your feelings change every day, and mine do too. Is that right? Have you ever woke up the next day and felt different than the day before? That's why you can't act on those. Imagine Jesus going to the cross. I don't feel like going to the cross today. Oh, it's a bad day for pain. I don't feel like it. I just don't feel like it. In fact, momentarily, he did in the garden. He said, Lord, if you could take the cup away from me, but you know what? Forget it. I'm going to go back to the word. Not my will, but your will be done. Does that make sense? Feelings, guys. Feelings will get you in trouble every time. Don't interpret your trials through feelings. Interpret them wisely based on the word. That's what Paul did. He's about to leave this church of Ephesus, and I think he wants them to know some things. Don't flip out about what happened. God is with you. Paul's like, I'm leaving, but you guys got to hold on to some certain things. And it goes on to say that, that just as he's about to leave them, they just went through this crazy trial of an uproar. Uh, you can read the chapter before this if you want to see how big that uproar was, but it was a major trial. And before he leaves, he does something really, really important. He knows I can't just leave these guys like that. I can't leave them thinking, oh, wow, what just happened here, and, and leave them kind of dizzy. It says that before he left, he, he got them together. He encouraged them. He encouraged them. This is another enormous part, should be, of your life and in mine. And if we learn from the early church, for all of us, guys, he knows, Paul knows this. Paul knows that if the enemy gets your heart, then the enemy gets the battle. The enemy will win that battle. If the enemy can get your heart, if the enemy can get you down, get you discouraged, get you defeated in your heart, then the rest is a matter of time. He knows that. If you study wars and warfare, even in the natural, what we've seen historically based on battles and war is one army will try to intimidate the other army. They may not be bigger and stronger, but if they can mess with them, if they can discourage them here first, the rest is a matter of time. Some people are dropping their weapons and running away before the battle even begins because they already got defeated on the inside. Football coaches will do the same thing. Come out and rally the heart, the cortisone, to get encouraged in the things of God, the promises of God, because if you lose this battle, you inevitably will lose the next battle. Paul knows that. Paul doesn't want to leave these guys. Look, you went through a crazy battle. Let me just leave, okay? He's like, no, before I leave, guys... I want to encourage you guys. The word encourage really means to take heart. Some people lose heart. You go through stuff in life. Maybe you get the wind knocked out of you. You go through some things and you don't understand what you went through. You hit some speed bumps. You hit some potholes along the way. And Paul's like, look, don't lose heart. Be encouraged. Jesus said this all the time. Be of good cheer. He would try to encourage folks in their faith because some would start losing and start get discouraged. And Paul's like, look, guys, don't lose heart. Because if you lose heart, if the enemy can win that battle, 
He'll win the next battle. Really, really important. And I know that some in this room have a great gift of encouragement. If you've ever taken a gifts test, you'll find out what your spiritual gifts are. The gift of encouragement or exhortation is one of the gifts. Now, some of you have a gift and you're really good at that. You know, Pastor Steve, for example, I know when I talk to him, sometimes I can't even finish the last word without him leaving a little encouragement behind. I try to throw one back, and he throws one right back at me to get the last word of encouragement. Our conversations usually finish with a word of encouragement. I know Scott is amazing that way as well. There's some of you, you just have a gift, and you just walk around encouraging folks. It's amazing. But I got to tell you, it's not just for the gifted. Encouragement is not just for the gifted. Encouragement is for all of us. And think about that yourself this morning. Are you an encourager? Who have you, who have you been encouraging? Because there is life on the other side of encouragement. Somebody's heart gets fanned into flame. Somebody ends up hearing maybe a promise of God or, or something in, encouraging where they take heart, and all of a sudden they just have a fresh wind to fight a battle. So that's the second one this morning, is to turn up your commitment to encouragement. Turn it up. It's got to be your commitment. Your commitment to encourage others, and God willing, folks around you will be encouraging you too. This is how the early church, if we want some lessons from the early church, there's a lot of this stuff going on. And when this stuff goes on, the people of God live victoriously. We live like more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. But when we don't do some of these things and do it our own way, people do get discouraged along the way. People wrongly interpret their trials. They get discouraged. They start to lose heart. And again, if the enemy can get your heart, he can get the next phase of the battle. Turn up your commitment. Commit to doing that. Your commitment to encouragement. It says that uh, in the passage that after he leaves Ephesus, Paul goes to Greece. And what's the first thing he does? He encourages the believers in Greece. I love that. And when it's time for him to leave there, he realizes there's this plot against his life. So apparently the bad guys are waiting down by the waterfront. And instead of leaving by boat, he decides to go by land. Here's his itinerary. But when we look at his itinerary, we can learn a lot by people's itinerary. We can learn a lot. And one of the things I love about Paul's itinerary, I love the way this guy travels. I love the way this guy, the way he rolls, the way he travels. Because Paul, he even travels in fellowship. <laughs> he even fellowships as he's traveling. We're going to see that fellowship is an enormous part of what's going on in the early church. And the people that he travels with, these folks are amazing. These are committed believers. If you look at the names and the geography of these people, they're committed believers from all different places. This is amazing. The passage says from Berea, Thessalonica, Derby, Asia. I mean, folks, are from, they're from all over the place. And um, there's a beautiful diversity, I would suggest, in the early church, a beautiful diversity in the body of Christ. Um, I think God's design, if we're going to truly reflect the true king of the universe, the true God of all creation, that we should, as a church and as a body of Christ, reflect that beautiful diversity. And I'm really pleased. I love that about this church, that we have a beautiful diversity in this church. Uh, the Bible talks about every tribe, tongue, and nation. And that's a good thing. In Revelation, that's the way the party ends up. Every tribe, tongue, and nation represented there. And I think if we're going to reach a city, we need to reflect that as well. And we do quite well. And I love that, once again, about this church. Um, you know, years ago, I was in, um, in Mississippi. And uh, we went to a church service out there. 
And I was surprised because the church service was 100% white. 100%. I'm looking around going, you've got to be kidding me. Why is this church? I mean, I just, because the, the communities weren't all that way. And then I realized that the, that the African-American churches were all black, all white, all black. And I'm like, what's up with these people? And I was praying, and I still do from time to time. I'm like, Lord, I pray you raise up in that town uh, a white pastor and a black pastor who love you, who get together and blow things up in a whole new way in that community. Because I could tell folks have been living that way forever, and they don't even think outside that. That doesn't represent the king as well. I realize there's churches, maybe they speak Spanish or speak Cantonese and Chinese, and because of the language, there's a, there's a clear communication. But the reality is, guys, there ought to be a beautiful diversity in the body. That's what was happening here. And I think if we're looking at lessons from the early church, that's something the world looks at and goes, whoa, check them out. I think maybe they have the answer. Look how they're all serving the same king together in community. It's amazing stuff. That's what was happening right here. But we do know this about the early church. They had a really, really big priority on fellowship. 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 Hanging out, getting together with one another. The, the Greek word is koinonia. It wasn't some like, yeah, whatever. You know, I don't really have time to get together with folks. I'm too busy. It wasn't that at all. Fellowship, koinonia, was part of their life. And this is the God-given design for the church. Fellowship to them was a priority. And when we look at this, by the way, koinonia, it really means living life together. Living it together. Not living it solo somewhere, doing it your own way. And, you know, it means living life together. Some of the words in the dictionary to describe the Greek word koinonia are community, communion, joint participation, sharing in the experience, sharing in the journey. This wasn't some optional thing. This was, a, this was a thing that the believers are like, we're all about this because this is God's design. And on the note of fellowship, since fellowship meant a lot to the early church, and since fellowship should mean a lot to us today in the 21st century, I want to ask you personally today, are you living life alone? Are you living life alone? Or are you living life in community and fellowship? Are you doing your faith sort of solo, or are you doing your faith in community? How are you living it out? Everyone's a little different on the pendulum. I have a little time for that, and that's about all I have time for. And others are like, no, this is actually what the journey's all about. Serving the king, growing, but there's a community aspect to it. And this community, guys, living life alone, this has nothing to do with married, single. There could be folks that are married that are still living life alone, because they're not living in community, fellowship. Does that make sense? There could also be folks that are single living completely in community and in fellowship. So the point is, uh, the question is that, are you living life alone or are you living it in fellowship? Do you go through your trials alone or do you go through your trials in fellowship? The Bible's got some great stuff about saying about that, about when, when two or more, Jesus even sent them out in twos. There's something profound about being partnered with other believers. And what happens when you are is people fan you in the flame when you need it. People encourage you when you need it. People come alongside you. In fact, that's the term for fellowship is to come alongside, really. It's not to fix people when things are broke. We don't fix people. I don't fix people. You don't, none of us can fix people. But we can come alongside them. 
We can come alongside. We can love them, encourage them. We can fan them into flame. This is the koinonia fellowship that is the God-given design for his people. And uh, it's, it's a really, really part. It's a big part, by the way. I think the Beatles were starting to get it a little bit when they said, we get by with a little help from my friends. Ooh, I'm going to try with a little help from my friends, right? They were starting to get it a little bit. There's something about a little help from your friends, and your faith was designed to be lived out in community. Do you know that? Your faith was designed to be lived out in community. There's certain personal aspects that just you alone in prayer with God getting a hold of your heart, but as you exercise your faith, it's supposed to be in community. And uh, the Bible tells us that no man is an island unto himself. No woman is an island unto herself. Some of us might say, well, I'm a little bit more introverted, so I don't really do that. That's not an excuse. Introverted, extroverted. It's not based, oh, if you're extroverted, then fellowship. And if you're introverted, then don't. God doesn't give us that option. It's a family of believers. That's what's going on here. So think about that this morning. Is fellowship a big part of your life? Is fellowship any part of your life? I know being here on a Sunday, it's some part of your life, but I want to encourage you in the area of fellowship because the early church had some stuff down that I think is sometimes lacking today, and I think it's their commitment to fellowship. Step number three this morning, if you're a note taker, is to fan your fellowship into flame. Fan it into flame. Fellowship just doesn't happen on its own. Fellowship takes the commitment. Fellowship takes, you know what? I'm getting together with my brothers and sisters in the Lord. Even if I'm tired, even if I don't feel like it, I'm going to do it. You know why? Because there's life there. There is life there. There's other folks living out the abundant life in the spirit. And when we get around them and next to them, all kinds of stuff comes out. It's amazing. I love, I love fellowship. Fellowship is an enormous part. Think about what place it has in your life. Think about that this morning. For example, fellowship midweek. Think about that. There's a men's study, women's study every other week. There's profound stuff. Gentlemen, I've, we've shared together in those circles some great stuff has come out, and God has established some, some glue We're kind of like a band of brothers God is establishing in the men's study. And that's because guys get to share things and we get to pray over things. And and all of a sudden, there's more fabric to our faith because God does something midweek. Same with the ladies. The ladies get to share on stuff, praying for each other. And there's stuff going on. And all of a sudden, there's a closer knit bond. This is so important. So when you do go through something or something happens, there is support, not just some general support, there's spiritual support, which you need and I need too. And if we think we don't need that support, we're wrongly mistaken. We need that support in the spirit, and that's what fellowship's all about. I would encourage you, men, women, get into the midweek kind of thing. Rock solid if you got kids, couples, if you want to uh, you know, do that for your marriage. Get together with accountability and fellowship with other couples, love and respects series. It's amazing. Um, but I would say on this topic, don't do the easy thing. Do the right thing. The easy thing is I'm just going to stay home. I'm just going to kick back. Do the right thing. Don't do the comfortable thing. Do the powerful thing. The powerful thing is to jump in to the fellowship. Get immersed in the fellowship. And so fan your fellowship into flame. That's uh, really important. And then the passage goes on in, um, in verse 7 as we look at our lessons from the early church. And uh, it says that on the first day of the week... 
we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. And there were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting, and seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on and on and on. And when he was sound asleep, some of you guys have done that before. That's why you laughed. Um, (laughs) I have too. Um, And when he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. And after talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home and were greatly comforted. Okay, a couple of things I want to break down from Paul's itinerary when we look at lessons from the early church. First of all, they're getting together on the first day of the week. The first day of the week is Sunday. Depends on how you look at your calendar. Some of you think Monday is. I tend to think that way. But Sunday is the first day of the week. Now, the thing about the first day of the week, you think, okay, the Jewish people, the people of God have always celebrated the Sabbath on Saturday And in fact, that's what Saturday means. It means Sabbath. In Spanish, sabado, Sabbath, that's what the word means. So you're thinking, if that's the Sabbath, why are we making our Sabbath on a Sunday? Valid question. And some have tried to put it back to Saturday and make a big rule or make some legal law about this where if you're a believer, you have to go back to the original Sabbath. Some will kind of flip out about that. But let me just tell you something. Jesus rose on the first day of the week. When Jesus rose on the first day of the week, he started a whole new covenant. He died on the cross, but he proved it three days later when he rose on the first day of the week. Everything he said was true when he rose from the grave. If he didn't rise from the grave like he said, then none of this would have been true. It would have been a a great teacher and a miracle worker. But the fact is, he's the Messiah, he's the Son of God. And when he threw off death on that first day of the week, ever since then, the establishment of this new covenant, ever since then, All of the believers got together to celebrate that resurrection on the first day of the week. So when we look at why we do what we do, we look at the early church and we're like, they got together on Sunday. They got together on the first day of the week. That's exactly what they did. And they came together and they they broke bread. They gathered to celebrate this resurrected Jesus and their faith together. And I would tell you something also, when you look at the book of Acts and you see this theme come up again and again, They didn't just recognize the first day of the week. They were very committed to the first day of the week. They were very committed to this day. And I say that because we tend to, in society, just go, well, I'll go to church if I can, and today I'm a little tired, I'm not going to. Or, you know, we kind of go, Sunday, yeah, it's important, but, you know, maybe I'm busy today or I got other stuff to do. We don't prioritize the first day of the week like they did, if we were to be honest about that. Um, A lot of folks come every week. Some come every second, every third. Some folks go to church once a month. Hey, listen, this isn't legalism and this isn't the law. And we're saved by grace. And going to church is not a requirement for you to get to heaven. Jesus' work on the cross is the requirement for you to get to heaven. However, there is life in this commitment. There's consistency in this commitment. There is blessing in this commitment. And Paul said, don't forsake 
the gathering. Now, if you know any believer who says, yeah, I don't go to church, I don't fellowship, they're simply biblically wrong. There is no justification. They can't say, well, I just meet with God out in nature. That's cool, but you got to get together with the believers. Paul said, do not forsake the assembly, the gathering. So the early believers gathered every week. So there is profound blessing in it. And I would say if we want to learn from the lesson of the early church, that's another point today. Step number four is commit to the first day of the week. Not like whatever, here's first day of the week. No, commit personally to the first day of the week. If you commit to the first day of the week and you're more consistent with the fellowship and what God's doing, you're going to realize new levels of life. You're going to realize God's starting to stir some things up and fan things up into flame. Commit to the first day of the week. And in fact, when you think of the first day of the week, that's the first fruits. The Bible uses the term first fruits. First fruits, for example, if you have, a, you have any trees, I have an orange tree in my backyard and everything's green, but every once in a while you'll see something come out orange like a month or two early. And you're like, wow, something came early. And it's the first fruits that you get. Now, the first day of the week is like that. When God's looking at your itinerary and my itinerary, and how we spend our time, and who we spend it with, and what we do. God's looking at our itinerary, and we want to live a life that's blessable. Do we give God the first fruits of our time? Monday's the first day of the week. Some are like, no, I just golf. That's it. Me, myself, and I. That's my first fruits. I just get out there and golf. Some are like, I just sit home, I watch football all day. I got 20 games I need to see. I split the screen. All That's what I do. So, me, myself, and I. And others are like, you know what? I'm going to go on a Sunday, first day of the week, and I'm going to give God the glory. I'm going to raise holy hands. I'm going to praise my God and my King because he's the Lord and he deserves it and he's, he's worthy of all praise. And I want to come to the house of God and be in fellowship, commit to the first day of the week, first fruits. Think about that in your life. If you want to learn a lesson about first fruits, ask yourself, where are you with first fruits? Where are your first fruits with your time, with your talents, with your resources? Where are first fruits in your life? Do you think that way? Do you think in the term of first fruits? Because the early believers did. First fruits is a big deal. Pray about that. Lord, I want to be like the early church. I want to be on fire for you. I want to see profound things, God. Would you get my heart right with this, uh, with this concept of the first fruits? What am I supposed to do with my first fruits? That's between you and the Lord, but I do think it's something we spend time with and get that right with God. Commit to the first day of the week. And... In these early church services, these guys were breaking bread, having communion, and we do that once a month here, and, and afterwards, they would have a meal. Now, um, some of you probably have had that big Thanksgiving you know, dinner, and you're sitting down, and you just go into a food coma after that. You just you can't deal anymore. You're just, just looking for a sofa, to, right? That's what happens. When you have a, and they're probably back then, they weren't having you know, carne asada and spaghetti bolognese or anything like we do around here. But they were probably having some matzo soup and stuff like that, and they were all eating this food. Well, this poor guy, Eutychus, this poor guy, he's up on the third floor, and he just probably put away three bowls of matzo soup, and he's sitting there listening to Paul go on and on and on and on. And if we were to be honest about that, we'd probably all have a story about that, right? Anybody? You'd start to... Not here. That's why we make extra strong coffee here, so this doesn't happen here. But... Um, Anyway, poor Eutychus, he's ready to fall asleep. He is falling asleep. And I remember um, uh, in Bible college, we, we were taking this course, and uh, this friend of mine, he 
would, you know, come from work. Everybody would work a long day. We would all eat like a big burrito or something and rush over to class because it was a nighttime class. And it was actually on the book of Acts, like what we're teaching through. And this teacher was an awesome guy. He loved the Lord. He had a sincere heart, very kind. But I'll tell you, when it came to communication, he talked on and on and on and on and never changed the tone of his voice for a couple of hours. It just kind of went on and on. And if there was a miracle in the book of Acts, there was a miracle that just happened. And he would talk about the miracle. It wasn't like a miracle happened. It was like, a miracle happened. And, and they went on to the next. And I tell you what, after you've had a big old carne asada burrito and worked a long day, that's tough to get through a class like that. So we would always, I would stop and get a cup of coffee because I knew I couldn't get through that class unless, well, this friend of mine wouldn't get a cup of coffee. And he would notoriously fall asleep. And he would sit right here, and this other guy I knew was on the other side, and we wouldn't know it until we heard, (laughs) and it was so hard to not bust out laughing in the middle of class. So me and my friend, we'd look at each other, and we'd go, like, who's going to wake him up? Who's going to do this? And it's like, your turn, my turn. Okay, it's my turn. And so we'd sit there during the class, and as the teacher's like up there writing on the board, or he's talking on and on about the book of Acts, one of us would go, (laughs) slam the book, and this guy would go, wake up like this. And the teacher would turn around looking at this kid go, like this. The teacher's like, are you okay, son? I think the teacher thought he was like having a manifestation or something in the class. But, but every single week, the same thing. And I'm like, you or me? Okay, you do it. Slam the book. And it was like so hard to not fall out of your chair laughing. But it was really funny. Well, that happens to some of us. We can all fall asleep at the wheel. In fact, maybe some of you have done that, too, driving down the road. Have you done that? Driving home late at night, and you start hitting the dummy bumps. Brrr, whoa. Brrr, hit the dummy bumps. Anybody done that? Okay. And you try to wake up. You try to turn up the radio or open the window. You and I can also do that in our faith. Do you know that? In our faith, we can fall asleep at the wheel. We're all capable of it. And if we're not honest with ourselves about it, we think, no, it ain't going to happen to me. But it does happen. We get sedated slowly but surely. We didn't ask to be sedated. We didn't ask to start passing out. Eutychus didn't say, I got a great idea. I'm just going to go up there and pass out and fall out of the window today. He didn't want that. He didn't desire that. But it happened to him because he just started to get more and more drowsy. We're all prone to it. We don't ask for it. And like Eutychus in the story, he didn't ask to fall out of a window or fall asleep. But if we were to be honest, you and I can start drifting in our faith. And so ask yourself this morning, what sort of things sedate you? Because when it happens, it happens slowly but surely. And I'm sure Eutychus, it's a real reality of what happened up there. And I know Paul was doing an all-night church session. But the similarity is this, guys, that in our faith, things can normally be going on and on. That means we're hearing things, but we're not really hearing it. We're going through motions, but we're really not getting it. Instead, we're falling asleep even being in a church service. This guy was in the faith. He was in the church. He was in the family of believers. And he was drifting and falling asleep right in the middle. Isn't it amazing? Guys, it can happen to me. It can happen to you too. And we can get into this drift and start falling asleep. Jesus had the same problem with the apostles. They're walking with Jesus. You'd think they'd be wide awake. And he goes to the garden and says, guys, this is so important right now. Do I have your attention? Oh, yeah, Lord, we're, we're with you. <laughs> Us and you, we're, we're good. Okay, can you stay awake for a little while? Can, can you pray? Can you be watchful for a little? Yeah, no problem, Lord, no problem. And as soon as Jesus walks away, 
drifting and falling into a deep sleep. He comes back. He's like, guys, please. This is so important right now. If you knew the season you were in in life, you'd be wide awake. Can you please hang with me a little longer? Can you pray and watch? Sure, Lord, no problem. And Jesus concludes, you know how the rest of the story goes. The Romans roll in on them. These guys were asleep at the wheel, missing opportunities. But the fact is this. Jesus said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. If we were honest about that, we would say, yeah, the spirit is willing, but yeah, the flesh is weak. Let's be honest about that. Because of that, the last point this morning, step number five, is commit to being wide awake in your faith. Commit to being wide awake. And if you're going to commit to being wide awake, I would encourage you to define or understand or discern the things that sedate you. How does the enemy come and put on some sedating music to you? What does the enemy do that puts you in a little drift? What happens for you and I to start checking out a little bit? We can even be in church, but our heart's not all the way in. What does it take in your life? During your week, your devotional time with the Lord, maybe your own private worship life, what does it take to start sedating you? Because if you and I don't identify it, we'll be like those apostles. We'll be sleeping at the wheel. Jesus is like, the the timing is so strategic right now. The the, the future is going to be forever different. Can you please stay awake and pray? No problem, Lord. And it happened to Eutychus. It happened to them. happened in the video clip today. And so please commit to being wide awake. In this area of, God, I want to be like that early church. I want the fire they had. I want the zeal they had. I want the passion they had. I want the fellowship they had. I want to be wide awake like they were. And and maybe you're in that place. Maybe you're like the earlier part of the story where you're going through a trial and you need a little encouragement and you need God to fan you into flame a little bit. But I want to pray this morning, and we're going to have the prayer team available to come up on the sides and pray with you. Uh, Don't be afraid to ask for prayer. In fact, the early church, you know what they were consistent about? Prayer, fellowship, communion, and the apostles' teaching. Four things the Bible says over and again. The teaching of the word, fellowship, breaking bread together, and prayer. Prayer was a key component of their life, and that's why the early church was the way the early church was. So I'm going to close in prayer on this, but I'm going to ask God to seal some of these things in our heart that you and I would get some of these lessons from the early church, that we would be like the early church, on fire, lit for the glory of God, walking in the power of the Spirit, and seeing the miraculous around us, literally, lives changed. Amen? You guys up for that? Amen. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Uh, Mighty God, thank you. Thank you for this passage. Thank you for giving us a little snapshot into Paul's itinerary. Thank you for showing us, Lord God, the power uh, of encouragement. Thank you for showing us, Lord, the, um, the, the way that we need to interpret our trials, God. We don't want to just be passive and interpret them in our feelings, but interpret them based on your word, God. Know that you haven't left us, that you're shaping and forming and conforming us into your image, Lord. You're building perseverance and hope and character in the middle of these trials, Lord God. I pray that you would show us, Lord God, how to commit first fruits to you, first day of the week to you, Lord. How to, how to commit to being wide awake, Lord, and how to identify the things that are making us drowsy, to identify the things that are sedating us as your people, that we wouldn't be like the apostles going, sure, Lord, got it. And in a prime time, a prime moment, a most crucial moment of our life, if we had any idea of what was about to happen, be checked out and sleeping. Lord, you're doing some profound things. 
You've made us for such a time as this. And I believe now more than ever, Lord, you want us to be prayerful and to be watchful and to be like this early church, God. This is not a time to forsake, Lord. This is not a time to take for granted. This is a time where you want to do great and mighty things in the hearts of your people and in our city and in our lives and in the lives of those around us. So God, I just want to pray in the name of Jesus that you would help us be watchful and prayerful and to recognize the times. And then when you would look at our itinerary in life, because you will when we stand before you, you would say, that was an amazing itinerary. I see that itinerary and who you spent time with and what mattered most to you and how you did things. That's a beautiful itinerary. I pray you would take our itinerary and bless it, make it yours. Help us to live for your glory. We love you and thank you, mighty God. We ask all these things in the mighty name of your son, Jesus.